Turn with me again to Romans chapter 8. just want to read verses 5 and 6 and then verses 12 through 14 and answer this third question that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Questions that we're asking of this passage in order to understand exactly what it is that this Christian life is about. So read with me Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And then at verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, the sons and the daughters of God. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, Again, as we come to your word, we're so thankful that we can trust it. We're so thankful that there is a voice in this universe that is reliable, that will always tell us the truth. Uh, And so we, we bow before you to give you thanks for your word, and we bow before you to call upon you to give us your spirit as well, so that by your word and your spirit, you, Lord Jesus Christ, might mold and shape us, might just a bit more reform us after your own image. Please do this. Do it for me. Do it for all of us. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Somebody was uh, teasing me last week after the service, teasing me about being a grandfather, teasing me about not being able to keep my mouth shut about it. Um, well, I'm, I'm going on vacation tomorrow, so you all will be free of my preoccupation with my granddaughter for a few weeks. Granddaughter. Tuesday, we learned that it's a girl, and that yeah, and that and the technician who um, who performed the sonogram that um, revealed that it was a little girl said, "And she has really long legs." And so I thought, well, of course she has really long legs. Her grandmother's had long legs. Her aunt has long legs and used those long legs to run cross-country, and her other aunt has long legs as well. Of course she would have long legs. She's a Malone. She's a Moore. I don't know about the Webster side of the thing, but I do know that her paternal grandparents are both short. So somehow in the gene pool, it looks like she got... Malone more legs. I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be happier. Now, you know, so what's happening here, right? 
It's the family likeness. There's plenty of Webster in this little girl. I'm happy about that. But what's happening? What's happening to this child still unborn, still being formed and shaped? She is being shaped after a family likeness. And if there's anything about this passage, this Romans chapter 8, that you could say that sort of summarizes what it is that's going on here as you move deeper and deeper and deeper into Romans 8, it is that Romans 8 is describing what happens to a Christian, a person who really is a Christian, a person who is in the Spirit, a person who has been transferred from this one realm into this other realm. That person, thanks be to God, is being formed and shaped after the family likeness, after the very likeness of Jesus. And I said last week that these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8 really are transitional verses. They're moving us from chapter 7 and the, the kind of the despair and the helplessness and the hopelessness, the wretched man that I am stuff of chapter 7, moving us in the direction of the tremendously hopeful stuff of the latter part of this chapter where the language so often, so frequently is the language of family. We're being moved in the direction of children of God. We're being moved by the powerful working of the Spirit, the mighty working of the Spirit who has led us from bondage and death in the flesh into life and freedom in the Spirit so that we're becoming more and more what we are. Because of what Jesus has done. We're becoming like our big brother. That's what's happening to you if you're a Christian this morning. It's happening. The image of, of, of Michelangelo's latter works, the, the works of his latter period, the end of his life, the sculpture that, that was not completed, that was still imperfect, that was emerging, right? That's... That is such a glorious picture of what is going on in your life. And it's very hopeful. It's very, very hopeful. So we started asking questions of this this passage a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul, to whom are you speaking? About whom are you speaking? Well, that's the answer to to, to that question. Who is Paul talking to here? Well, he's talking to those who are in the Spirit. He's talking to those who live by the Spirit. He's talking to those who, by the Spirit, are putting to death the deeds of the body. He's talking to those, verse 14, who are the children of God being led by the Spirit. And we're going to have a chance to look at that uh, in a few weeks when, when we get back. What does that mean exactly? to be led by the Spirit. We're going to see that it doesn't have to do with divine guidance. It has to do with something far more significant, far more glorious, far more profound than that. Paul's talking to and about the family of God. And then last week we asked this second question. Well, Paul, what do you expect? What are your expectations about these people? And the expectation generally is 
that of change. That, that a person who really, who really has been transferred from this one realm to the other realm, this person who, to use the language of, of John, this person who has been born again, born of the Spirit, this person who has experienced the new birth, this person is going to begin to look more and more and more like the elder brother Jesus, into whose image we are being transformed. And that's verse 29 of Romans 8. That's the expectation. And we said that there are a couple of words that characterize what goes on in the life of a Christian right now. Change is one. We're going to be changed. And struggle is the other. Struggle is the other. Can I just pause for a, a kind of a personal reflection and a, and a bit of application here? It just makes me crazy to be around Christians who convey to you this idea that they've arrived. And, and then they convey to you this idea that you can't really be a part of the group unless you too have arrived. That's nonsense. That is sheer and utter nonsense. Why in the world would there be all of these encouragements and admonitions throughout Paul's letters and all of the rest of the letters that you read in the New Testament? Why would there be these admonitions, all of these encouragements, without asterisks, without footnotes, directing you to the bottom of the page, where at the bottom of the page you would read, this applies to everybody except those who have already arrived. You never find it. You never see it any place. Folks, let me just say this. I don't care who you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how much you have in your past in the way of Christian history and personal understanding of the gospel. You are still a work in process. And, you know, again, we're going to look at this a bit more in the weeks to come. I just don't ever have the luxury. I I don't ever have the luxury, and I will tell you it is sheer lunacy to think that I ever have the luxury of getting to the place in my life, in my Christian life, where I can retire from this business. I am a work in process. And that then leads to this third question, and I I will tell you that I think anybody who has been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, but certainly more than 15 weeks or months or years, this question sooner or later comes up. It's the third question. Paul, this is too hard. Why try? This is too hard. Right? I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll just ask for the show of one hand. Have you ever gotten to the place in your life as a Christian where you've said, I just can't do this anymore. This business of being a Christian is too hard. It's too hard to love those I don't love. It's too hard to love those I don't like. It's even too hard to love those I love. This is too hard. It's too hard to be selfless. It's too hard to take up my cross daily and die to myself. It's too hard, Paul. Why try? After all, I am forgiven. Right? The cross tells me I'm forgiven. 
Justification tells me I'm accepted. I've gained access into His presence, in this grace, by this grace, in which I stand, from which I will never be uprooted. I'm secure. I'm safe. Why try? It's too hard. Now, if if I'm the only one in this room who has wrestled with that and asked that question, the rest of you are free to leave, and I'll just have a little chat with myself. And I think Paul gives us three answers to the question, why try? And I mentioned these very briefly last week. But I think there are powerfully compelling reasons to hang in there and to keep fighting this fight. There is a negative motivation. There is a positive motivation. And there is what I called last week the third motivation, a filial motivation. Let's deal with the negative first. The negative, if you will, motivation. That's what you find in verses 6 and 13. To set the mind on the flesh is death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You see what I mean when I I describe this as a negative motivation? To set the mind on the flesh is death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. I wonder if we really see, if we really feel the impact of this. If we really feel the weight of the implications of this. Here's the bottom line. This is a a paraphrase, paraphrasing the Apostle Paul. The more I move in the direction of what is contrary to who Jesus Christ is, the more I move in a direction that is contrary to the righteousness of God, the more I move in the direction of what is unrighteous is to move in the direction not simply of what is wrong, not simply of what might get me in trouble, not simply of what might displease God, to participate in unrighteousness, to move away from who Jesus Christ is as the incarnation of righteousness is to move in the direction of death. It is death that the apostle uses as a word to describe where sin leads us. Again, it isn't just that it is wrong. It'll kill you. It'll kill you. Let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. When Paul uses this language to set the mind on something What he is saying is that that thing upon which the mind is set becomes the focus of your mind. It becomes the center with which your mind is preoccupied. We have this little phrase. Well, we don't use it so much anymore. It's an interesting phrase. Mind your P's and Q's. You know where that comes from? It comes from the taverns. Mind your pints and quarts. It's what the barkeeper would say as the tavern was about to shut down. Mind your pints and quarts. Mind your P's and Q's. In other words, finish up because the door is going to be locked. And nobody in a tavern wants the rest of that Guinness to be lost. And so you focus your mind on your pint or your quart. 
We say, mind your own business. In other words, keep my business away from the center of your focus and focus on your own business. Mind your own business. Keep your own stuff at the center of your attention. That's the kind of imagery that's here. The mind that is set on the flesh, where does it go? It goes in the direction of death. It doesn't move in the direction of life. No matter what it promises, it moves you in the direction of participation in death. And the flesh, remember that this is more than just bodily passions. Remember that it's more than simply particular sins that we consider to be particularly unsavory, the passions of the flesh. Remember that Paul uses this language, the flesh, in a way that's very similar to the way John uses the language, the world. Don't love the world or the things of the world. The flesh, the world, is to consider reality, all of life, as disconnected from, detached from, the infinite personal God who is really there. To set the mind on the flesh is to find another interpretive center for living. Do you get that? It is to find another interpretive center for living. Let me give you a couple of examples. They're both painful. They're both powerfully tragic. Amy Winehouse, 27 years old and dead becomes a member of the 27 Club, the club that includes Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. 27 years old, pop diva, success, money, fame, dead. Do you know what some of her last words were? As I understand it, these were words that she penned before she died. She said to her parents, I'm so tired of being a disappointment. I'm so tired of being a disappointment. If your heart doesn't break when you hear those words and think about that story, it should. Because you see what happened. What happened is that something other than the God of infinite grace, love, and mercy, who gave his very own son so that people could know deep in their bones that they are fully and entirely and completely accepted, so accepted because of Jesus that the Father would never be disappointed in his or his child. Never. Do you believe that that is what the gospel means? That your heavenly Father, because of the righteousness of Christ, is never disappointed, but rejoices over you with his love. Something else had become the interpretive center for Amy Winehouse And through that center, that thing that was at the center, the totality of reality was interpreted. And rather than being freed, she was crushed. Let me give you another example. 
recently had a conversation. And I want to be discreet about this, and I want to be so very careful, but I recently had a conversation. Actually, it was some, some time ago, I mean, in, in the recent past. A conversation with a 65-year-old man who had recently retired, highly successful, highly successful. And I can tell you that, and a Christian, and a Christian, and I can tell you that I looked into his face as I heard him utter these words, and I saw the grief, the pain, and the confusion etched into his face. I've been a CEO for 40 years. I don't know what to do with myself. And I thought to myself, it isn't that this man doesn't have something to do. It is that this man does not know who he is. As a child of the infinite personal God who is really there. And you see what has happened? Even for a Christian, it can happen for you. It can happen for me. I see it. I see it in me. I see it in my peers. I see it in pastors. The interpretive center becomes something other, someone other than the infinite personal redeeming God who is there. The size of my church, the number of feet, seats in the pews, the size of the building. When, when I go to meetings of Presbyterian General Assembly, people say, how's the church going? And you know what they want to know? They want to know where they are in the pecking order. They want to know if their church is bigger than mine so they can feel better about themselves. And do you know why I don't tell them? Because I don't want my church to be smaller than theirs because I don't want to feel worse about myself. And you see what has happened? For me as a Christian pastor who presumes to stand before a group of people and herald the glad tidings of forgiveness and freedom and security in Jesus Christ, something else has become the interpretive center. And all of reality gets passed through it rather than God himself, the infinite personal God who is really there and who is my Father. If anything takes the place of that interpretive center, that is the flesh. And to set the mind on anything other than the infinite personal redeeming God who has become your Father by the mighty operation of the Spirit as the Spirit applies the finished work of Christ to you. If anything else becomes the interpretive center for your life, it leads to Death leads to death. My friends, it's a powerful motivation to move away from death. But that's not the only thing that Paul says. There is a positive motivation as well. Look again at both verses 6 and 13. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live life 
and peace. You will live if you're engaged in this struggle and by the Spirit you seek to put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Notice this word. The commentators and preachers have made a big deal of this very little word, this three-letter word, B-U-T, but. Paul uses it in Ephesians 2. You, you, Ephesians, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. People have said it's the biggest word in the Bible. This is what you were, but this is who you are. If you set your mind on the things of the flesh, you will die. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you will live. The Spirit is life and the Spirit is peace. You see, the more I move in the direction of Jesus Christ, the more I seek to understand what it means when Paul says, set your minds on things above where Jesus Christ is. The more I seek to set my mind on Jesus Christ, and we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks to talk more about what it means in particulars, but the more I immerse myself in the scriptures themselves, the more I listen to sermons, the more I surround myself with God's people, the more I engage God's people in the midst of the struggles, the more I come to the Lord's Supper and and enjoy this means which He has appointed for me, this means of grace, the more I employ the things that God has given to me. Those are the things that move me in the direction of Jesus. And to move in that direction is life and peace, and it puts death in the rearview mirror. Obedience is one of those things. Obedience is one of those things. Obedience is hard. But amazingly enough, By the grace of God, because of what Jesus has done in my life, because of this new life that God has imparted to me, there is now this power operating, functioning, working relentlessly, purposely, purposefully, intentionally, moving me in the direction. And the more I run in the direction of that obedience, the more I move in the direction of life. I've been listening, I've been listening, I've been reading the Proverbs I'm in the Old Testament. I told you last week that I was in Deuteronomy. I'm also reading the Proverbs. Listen to some of these Proverbs. Listen to the things that are said here in the Proverbs. Proverbs 4:18. But the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The path of righteousness is like the light of dawn. It's an imagery, isn't it? It's a picture. The path of righteousness is light as opposed to the path of unrighteousness, which is darkness. Nobody's safe in the darkness. Things go bump in the night. You don't know what they are. Several months ago, before Barb had her eye surgery, she woke up 
in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And, and it's become a habit for us in our old age to get up when we get up in the middle of the night and to go sit and read the Psalms and be quiet. And Barb walked out of her room and she looked to the left and she thought that she heard the doorbell ring and she thought that she saw someone standing outside the door. It was, and she came and woke me up. And there was nobody there. But you see, in the darkness, you don't know what's there. But in the light... You can see what's there, and it's safe. The path of righteousness is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter. Proverbs 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of oppression and burdensomeness and imprisonment. No. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Let me give you just a few more. Proverbs 14.12, Proverbs 14.27, Proverbs 15.24, Proverbs 16.17. They all convey this imagery, this theme of life connected to righteousness. And as you read those passages, as you read those passages, remember this. Remember this, this this stuff is not written by some guy who sat in an ivory tower and tried to construct some sort of moralistic code for the living of life. Remember that this is Solomon, and Solomon knew what he was talking about because he was the son of his father David, and David is the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba who walked down the path of unrighteousness. Solomon had a brother who died in infancy. He had a brother whom he didn't know because of the unrighteousness of his father. There's a context for Proverbs. It's not this self-righteous goon sitting in an ivory tower someplace, wagging his finger at people, telling them what to do. He felt the pain and anguish of the death that is the inevitable outcome of pursuing unrighteousness. And he's writing out of his own heart, under the inspiration of the greater father, he's writing to his own sons, that his own sons, might know life and not death. And remember too, as you hear the Apostle Paul saying that the outcome of pursuing righteousness, the outcome of pursuing Jesus, the outcome of staying on this path and fighting this fight, this struggle, is life and peace. Remember that for Paul, the Jewish person, peace is more, much, much more, than the cessation of hostilities. It's much more than tranquility. It's much more than the surface of the water being glassy. Shalom for a Jewish person is this comprehensive picture of life as it is supposed to be. Life as it is supposed to be. I don't have time to read you these two passages, so I'm just going to give you these passages and invite you to read them. Deuteronomy 20, verses 19 and 20. And Deuteronomy 22, verses 6 and 7. They have to do with how trees are to be cared for, and they have to do with what you do when you encounter a bird in a nest. 
a bird, a mother that has little birds in her nest. Now you ask, what in the world, in a whole laundry list of various kinds of laws, what in the world is God saying to Israel when he talks about trees and birds? Here's what's being conveyed. God cares about the totality of life. And God's purpose, far beyond mere tranquility, is the reclamation and the restoration of the totality of life. That is shalom. And to move in the direction of Jesus, of righteousness, is to move in the direction of that shalom. And then here's the last motivation. Oh, and I hate to be so quick about this. The third motivation is what I have called filial. And filial means that which is befitting of a son or a daughter. That which is befitting of a son or a daughter. Why would I persevere in this? Why would I fight this fight? Why would I wage this warfare? Why would I put up with all of the discomfort and anguish involved in being extracted from a piece of stone, being chipped at, being polished, being honed, being shaped? Why would I put up with all of the agony associated with emerging? Because your heavenly Father gave your big brother Jesus to secure this for you. It is befitting of the sisters and brothers of Jesus that they would see that this is that for which their heavenly Father has purchased them. I think it's some of what Paul is talking about later in Romans in verse 17 when he refers to us as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To be connected to Jesus is to be connected to the suffering that is inevitably a part of this work that God is doing to move you into conformity with the image of the Son who has come to secure this for you. This is what is befitting of the sons and the daughters of God. Nobody likes it. Everybody hates it. No one says, lacerate me again. No one says, I like what it feels like to have my abdomen opened up from my neck to my navel so that God, by his spirit, may work around in there to extract the cancers that are robbing me of life. Nobody says, let's do that again. And yet the final outcome of what it is that God, by his spirit, is doing in you is life and peace. And the life and peace that he calls you to has been purchased for you by his beloved son. 
so that you might be heirs with him of the fullness of the Father's house. Let's pray together. And as we come to this table, as we gather at this table, let's keep these things in mind. This table is here to remind us that Jesus has died for us, that he is present with us, and that he will finish what he has started in us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in grace and mercy you have made us sons of our Heavenly Father, daughters of our Heavenly Father, children of the great King. Would you give us grace that we might continue to keep you at the center, that we might continue to fight this good fight which you have set before us to fight by your Spirit, that we might be conformed to the image of the one who is life and peace, Jesus, our elder brother. Hear our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.